Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio stated partners or on the podcast, the Green Majority podcast. And uh, I'm David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? Recording again from my bedroom. Yes. And I think that I owe our listeners an apology because last week I had less than nothing. Hmm. Last week I had less than nothing. This week, I have a solid nothing, uh, and hopefully next week, I'll be inching ever closer to that coveted something. Uh, and I think I shall begin by stating the obvious, Stefan, yes. which is that with every passing hour, we slink further into our collective labyrinthine nightmare. As our brittle economic system quavers under the weight of collapsing demand, because most businesses have closed and we're all sitting inside to avoid spreading the novel coronavirus. Of course, one of the worst global crises in modern history had to hit us as the United States of America is boasting probably its most incompetent White House ever, and as the more slow-moving but much more ominous climate crisis requires that we move quickly and definitively away from fossil fuels, which remains the centerpiece of our sacred cow of unending economic growth. It's possible we could, therefore, find ourselves putting even more money into the hands of the wealthiest people as we try to prop up our failing economy and also uh, pour relief into obstinate industries that should be either disappearing or changing drastically, like cruise lines, airlines, and oil and gas. But as Naomi Klein cunningly uh, quoted Milton Friedman in her recent video for The Intercept, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Out of the COVID-19 crisis, then, we could either see a tightening of corporate control as the economic meltdown leaves workers at the mercy of even more monopolies and billionaire power, or we could have a shift akin to the New Deal, which would pour money into the hands of workers and environmental infrastructure and ecological cleanup projects, allowing this pandemic to become a catalyst for unprecedented positive change that could address climate change and social justice in a way that didn't seem imminently plausible or even possible even a month ago. Wow. If that's your nothing, I really cannot wait for, for next week. We're, uh, I inch closer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is the show. That's actually a great intro to what this show is going to be about. It We're basically looking at, at what, uh, what the ideas are that are lying around. Um, you know, this is what we're, we're, we're going to dive into. We've, you know, here we are recording early on Wednesday. And so if something un- incredible happens on Thursday, please forgive us. We'll have to cover it on next week's show. But the, but today was the day that the, that the Trudeau government, uh, successfully passed its, its first 
uh, stimulus package um, and and uh, first of what will need to be more, of course, money coming in to, to see the re- when the rebound sort of has to happen. This is more of the uh, the stay the course and keep everyone from from sur- this is the survival response. And, and we'll have to see the, the response later uh, that actually looks at the rebound. And we'll be looking at different ideas for that throughout the show. But basically what you're going to get from us is we're we're gonna we're sort of opening up the show. We're gonna go to we're gonna throw to Lauren in a short bit, our auto correspondent who recorded uh, pre-recorded as well a bit uh, about the Green New Deal and, and where we're at now, uh, which will be coming up shortly. Then we're gonna come back with some news about about some Canadian ideas, uh, and then and then some American ideas uh, or more, more 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 global ideas in the last segment. Uh, does that does that sound about right, Dave? Well, that does sound right, but everything I hear these days inevitably sounds wrong. Well, that's that's fair. Um, but, but I'm glad at least I, I correctly found the agenda to the show. So with that, uh, I think we can throw it... To, we're going to throw very quickly, uh, actually, to, to our first music break. Uh, and then we're going to come back with Lauren. Uh, and, then, and then two segments after that, uh, covering sort of all of these ideas that lie around. Hi, Green Majority listeners. This is Lauren, your Ottawa correspondent. Given that we're all under social isolation and the rest of the team isn't recording in studio on Fridays, I'm unable to call in like I normally would. We're unsure of how things will progress going forward, but this week I'm recording from my partner's closet so I can chat with you all super quickly about the government response to coronavirus and how a Green New Deal offers a a possible path forward. I'm starting off by reading an an excerpt from a March 15th Globe and Mail op-ed by Avi Lewis of The Leap, an organization based here in so-called Canada, working on issues related to climate justice and a Green New Deal. This is a great piece, and not too long, so I'd highly recommend giving it a read if you're looking for some motivation and inspiration on your 13th day of isolation. So, are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. While stock markets veer between fear and greed, some of us find ourselves ricocheting from fear to hope and back again. Beyond this week's initial economic package, it's entirely possible that the Trudeau government will soon have to step up with a massive economic stimulus, perhaps one even bigger than a decade ago. And while U.S. President Donald Trump seizes this crisis moment to bail out his billionaire friends in an unsustainable industry, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, preparing a budget and searching for a unifying second-term mission, could and should bail out people and the planet instead. In fact, The response to this period of converging crises is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the federal government to initiate a reset of our economy and society, putting Canada on a path towards zero emissions and bringing immediate material benefits and enhanced 21st century universal public services to everyone, prioritizing Indigenous, radicalized, and working-class communities, that is, the people who need them most. In other words, this is the ideal moment for Canada to launch the decade of the Green New Deal. A sweeping vision launched nationally last spring by more than 150 climate and social justice organizations, building on momentum south of the border from U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Climate Movement. Essentially, it recommends an unprecedented public investment in a justice-based transition that creates a vast number of well-paying, preferably unionized, jobs, solves our crisis in housing, crumbling infrastructure, health and education, inadequate transit, and deep inequality. This kind of public investment would vastly expand the tax base and stabilize the economy at the same time, 
We know this can be done in Canada. During the Second World War, under the leadership of none other than the Minister of Everything, C.D. Howe, this country created 28 new crown corporations to manage every aspect of the war effort. That's the level of commitment we need for a rapid shift to a climate-safe and more equal economy, and we certainly have the resources to do it. As a Globe and Mail editorial said recently, Canada can dis- can deploy fiscal stimulus worth tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars if necessary, and it can borrow at the lowest interest rates in human history, which it can lock in for decades. In the midst of all these terrifying and converging disasters, this is perhaps the greatest opportunity to shatter the shackles of austerity thinking and see the potential for a government to do big things like actually lead a democratic and inclusive response to the climate emergency at the speed and scale that science and justice require. In a crisis like a pandemic or economic meltdown, a climate breakdown or all of the above at once, people across the ideological spectrum want and expect the government to ride to the rescue. And while it does so, there is a historic opportunity to heal all kinds of wounds across the land. Imagine, just for one example, if on the other side of the coronavirus pandemic, the federal government started pointing Alberta in, pardon me, started painting Alberta in publicly owned solar panels, creating tens of thousands of jobs that paid prevailing energy industry wages, while enforcing the law of polluter pays to spark a reclamation boom cleaning up a century of oil and gas wells and infrastructure. All right, so again, that was um, Avi Lewis's, or a portion of Avi Lewis's op-ed in the Globe and Mail from March 15th. I wanted to read that to you because Avi Lewis captures in those few paragraphs exactly the kind of thought leadership we need to see in these times. We're going to hear from a lot of people that now isn't the time for this kind of progressive agenda, that we just need to focus on getting through this. But you have to understand that if these measures had been in place years ago, we wouldn't be in the dire straits we are now. Yes, COVID-19 would still likely be sweeping the globe, but we would be better prepared for it. We'd have more healthcare personnel. We'd have more personal support workers. We'd have an energy system that was better able to passively absorb solar and harness wind, requiring fewer workers to maintain our grid day to day. Heck, we'd have passive houses capable of heating and cooling independently of an energy grid. We'd have a four-day work week because, frankly, we don't need to be producing and pushing ourselves towards growth the way we currently are. We'd have a universal basic income that would guarantee that no one would go hungry if they couldn't go to work, a jobs guarantee that would make sure folks would at least have work to return to, and a housing guarantee to ensure that no one was left sleeping out in the cold in late March cold snaps. But because we don't already have those things, we're in a pretty sticky situation, societally speaking. However, we're also at a pivotal moment where we're being presented with a choice. We know that in order to get out of this alive, this being both a pandemic and its associated economic recession, that we're going to have to spend a heck of a lot of money. Right now in Canada, that money looks like approximately $80 billion, 30 of which is going to the people, and 52 of which is manifesting in tax delays for corporations. All of this in addition to $15 billion going to the oil and gas industry. Instead of bailing out corporations, (laughs) because remember how well that went last time, what if that... $80 billion, or $52 billion rather, to be correct, what if that $52 billion went towards universal basic income, enabling millions of everyday Canadians to breathe a sigh of relief when they're being told that they can't show up to work? What if it went towards rebuilding our economy, providing jobs, building green infrastructure? Or hey, what if it went towards ending boil water advisories in Indigenous communities so they can wash their hands and prevent the spread of the virus in the first place? And as for that oil and gas bailout, it's nonsensical. This industry would be struggling even without a global pandemic decimating the economy. That $15 billion, sure, 
maybe needs to be going to support industry, but it should only go into projects that set us on a track for a world of limited warming. If a project is going to push us past 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, it doesn't get stimulus funding. At least I think that's how it should be. So please, if someone tries to tell you that now isn't the time for this kind of thinking, don't listen to them. You're stuck in your apartment for the next several weeks. What better time to scheme with your comrades and organize for a Green New Deal? If you want a little more information, if you want to read up, uh, there's a really fantastic effort out of the United States called the People's Bailout um, that I know is being similarly adopted and tweaked for the Canadian context. So so check that out for some inspiration. And, and again, understanding what this bailout could look like, because we know we're going to need an economic stimulus package to get out of this recession we're in and this disaster we're in. Well, that's it for me today, Green Majority listeners. I'm going to pass you back over to your trusted hosts and faithful friends, Stefan and David. Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, captained by the indomitable, untouchable, legendary Ken Stauer. Uh, I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter, recording in my bedroom as the COVID crisis continues. And uh, now we're going to turn to some thoughts about the Canadian bailout prior to uh, it's Stefan. You said it was announced when it was. It was just past uh, today. Wednesday. It was just past Wednesday. But the... but these are some more thoughts about not only sort of what this could entail, but also what what the future response is going to have to be. Because this is only the the response today was largely trying to ensure that basically, you know, we didn't have to leave thousands and that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, unemployed. Mm. Two thousand uh, dollars. Uh, yeah, uh, two thousand dollars will be will hopefully be coming to most people. Um, How often? Uh, every month, okay. Uh, but yeah, so that's. But we'll leave. We'll leave that sort of reporting to the to the non-environmental news. And we're talking more about the what what the response could be in a longer term sense. That's sort of working yeah. here. So they passed that on the twenty fifth, uh, and we'll see what happens in the future. Jeff Dembicki uh, reported on the twentieth of March for the Taiyi about how the Canadian government might respond to the economic catastrophe facing the oil and gas sector arguing that, quote, the federal government should do everything possible to help oil and gas workers clobbered by the economic meltdown caused by the coronavirus. But bailing out fossil fuel companies unable to survive one of the worst oil price drops in the industry's history is a terrible idea. He quotes professor of political science at the University of Toronto, uh, Jessica Green, as saying, what the coronavirus has made very real is that even in a country like Canada, with a reasonable social safety net, workers are getting massacred, and it's going to keep happening, and we need to come up with a way to fix that problem full stop. Resuscitating a dying industry is not fixing the problem. Dembicki points out that the bailout uh, for the industry that Ottawa uh, is currently planning is currently planning, or did they already pass that? Oh no, no. The the oil bailout would the, the, what they passed today was the unanimous uh, protection for. Okay. So they're still planning the oil. Yes, that's okay. still. In the- 
that they're currently planning, the bailout they're currently planning, uh, could potentially suspend the carbon tax, uh, purchase assets from oil and gas corporations, and also pay unemployed workers to clean up uh, old abandoned oil wells. The Globe and Mail reported on the 20th that, uh, quote, one senior Alberta source said the province is expecting Ottawa to provide $15 billion in relief to an industry that has been hammered by the COVID-19 crisis and the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia that has cratered oil prices and energy company stocks. A massive coalition of environment groups representing 1.3 million Canadians sent a letter to Trudeau and cabinet ministers on the 23rd of March reading, quote, Any federal government intervention to protect health and livelihoods must build an economy that's ready to weather any crisis. Oil and gas workers and their families, like many others across Canada, urgently need financial support. And I'll just throw in here, yes, indeed, it's very obvious that our economy is not currently set up to weather to weather a crisis. So, uh, continuing on with the letter, decades of the impacts of colonialism, including government neglect in healthcare in indigenous communities, has led to an overall lack of pandemic preparedness. The two key public health measures recommended to prevent the spread of COVID-19 are hand-washing and social distancing. Neither can be effectively carried out in the majority of indigenous communities with non-potable water and substandard overcrowded housing, deepening the impact of the burden of illness at the community level. There is consistent evidence that indigenous people in particular are at increased risk of severe outcomes and health status disparities during outbreaks, demanding equitable distribution of human and material resources. Giving billions of dollars to failing oil and gas companies will not help workers and only prolongs our reliance on fossil fuels. Oil and gas companies are already heavily subsidized in Canada, and the public cannot keep propping them up with tax breaks and direct support forever. Such measures benefit corporate bottom lines far more than they aid workers and communities facing public health and economic crises. And the three bullet points provided by the letter are as follows. One, oil and gas workers like all workers from all sectors, need to be able to immediately access income support in order to preserve personal and public health. This support includes increased access to employment insurance and paid emergency leave as needed for all workers, regardless of immigration status, as well as income security. This applies to migrant and undocumented workers. 2. Stimulus money should offer immediate relief directly to workers and provide opportunities for training, education, and employment in existing and emerging low-carbon sectors like energy efficiency, technology, healthcare, and renewable energy. A program styled on the bailout of automakers in 2008 will unfortunately put the public at similar risk of having spent billions of dollars with little to show for it in a decade. 3. Money for orphan well cleanup should be administered by an independent fund with representation from indigenous communities, local governments, and landowners who can ensure it is used to reclaim wells where the company is bankrupt and its remaining assets have already been spent for this purpose. 
It should also be tied to regulatory change in Alberta to ensure the province puts in place a polluter-pays program so the public is not left with these liabilities in the future. And that does it for the letter. All right. Um, so there's there's a number of things here. Uh, and I'll, I'll work backwards, I guess, just because it's fresh in my mind. So th- th- there's a... Th- man... The fact that part of this bailout could be included could include uh, support to clean up oil and gas, uh, the, the the abandoned oil wells, is deeply frustrating. Uh, because not only was one of the very first acts of Jason Kenney when they came in to scrap a bill uh, that had that had that was actually meant to design to prevent the fact prevent more orphan wells from existing. Like one of the major problems about how you end up with orphan wells um, is that a a very profitable company like Exxon uh, will 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 use most of the oil. And then as they're getting close, they'll sell it to another, to a smaller subsidiary oil company, which will use more of the oil. And then they will get closer and still, and they will sell it again and again and again until basically you end up with this very, very small oil company owning the, owning the oil well, who will then will go bankrupt as a way to not to avoid having to clean it up. And, and what the bill that had been put in place, I believe by the Notley government, would do was, was actually track that back up to, to Exxon, to require Exxon to pay to clean up that bill. So they couldn't just sort of offload this at the last second to avoid having to pay. Because what was happening previously was obviously these n- new companies would swoop in, basically get a little bit of money and then declare bankruptcy um, and, and then run away. And that was sort of and, – and there's, this was specifically meant to do this. And like there has been incredible work by, done by the Pembina Institute um, and by, by environment groups all over the place going on about just how big of a problem this is and how much that this is just a way for – to privatize the profits of, of, of these wells and to publicize the, 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 the expenses. The costs. The costs. And so, and so the fact that, that this bailout of, uh, at this moment might be used for that is such a – it's like using a crisis as a – way to get a rent to, to avoid admitting that this is exactly what has occurred you know there was a report we covered on the show maybe about a year ago that was sort of saying that, that the percent that how big this problem was was being vastly underestimated by the albertan government and and then they sort of came out and pretending that that wasn't the case and so you know like let's not are these the kamikaze Companies. Uh, so, so the kamikaze company, the, the, the kamikaze thing was actually was was actually related to uh, the the what the UCP leadership bid, where a guy ran just to basically torpedo another another uh, another bid, um, and then that individual guy did then get connected to a bunch of these companies that did this. Yes. So but, these companies go in expecting to become bankrupt. Like they're, they're, I'm not going to go and say that. I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to say that much, but I'm going to say that they are very intentionally sold to companies that much, much smaller companies. Which then the bigger companies and the Canadian Petroleum Institute will consistently say, "Look, look, the most of our, our members don't cause this and don't do this because it's always this small, these small other other people." But mm-hmm. but they but they are the ones selling them later on, right? They, they're still they they are the ones getting most of the profit from these wells and then selling the the liabilities out for sure. And the public has to clean them up. And the public is then being quite as clean up exactly um and so and so like that is like man that that is just us bailing out the oil companies and not to mention if 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 this happens and depressingly i would be very surprised if it didn't 
But if it happens, let us never, ever, ever listen to the propaganda that comes from the oil industry about how good they are reclaiming their, their land at the end of the use of their oil sands. Like, like that, let's, let us never accept that propaganda again, because basically, because if they are using this moment to get these wells cleaned up and to avoid the fact that they are not, they're not cleaning up the things afterwards. Like there's so much about how they, about how much land they will return to normal. Uh, and this happened. And yet we're consistently seeing these, these sites being left, uh, left orphaned. And so never again, shall we, should we listen to that? Uh, one step before that, we had sort of talked about how the importance that migrant workers must be included in the, in the in the support, and and to me that that under, one thing to underline there is really the fact that you know that when when we consider what essential services are, what these migrant workers are doing is one hundred percent that they are they are picking the food that 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 is becoming. Uh, that is coming to our tables. They are the reason why people are able to stay and work from home. They are the reason that we'd be able to do this. And so to ignore their contributions, despite the fact that they are truly the essential people in, in, our, in our economy, let alone any of the people who are going to make the money out of, off this, uh, or the people who are sort of like getting to seem as altruistic people that are sort of saying you can defer your mortgage or whatever. Like, like the, 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 the migrant workers cannot be forgotten uh, because they are... Like if there's one thing this crisis is showing is who is truly essential, and the people picking our food and the farmers, farmers doing this work, are 100% a part of a part of that. The public display of generosity is only afforded to those who can afford it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and, yeah, and then the thanks that we get to give are the ones are, are to the people who are just agreeing to make more money later, rather than the people who are literally still doing the work right now. You know, and the, and the best we can do for the people, you know, on the front lines of grocery stores is give them a two dollar raise. You know, are we kidding? Um, uh, to one further before that was about oil subsidies. And um, I, I will want remind everyone once again that a big percentage of oil subsidies that are being given in Canada are actually given in the way of cheapening flights. Uh, they are they are ways to make flights cheaper. Um, and so, and so the, the combination here that, of, 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 of how bad short term flights are for the, for the emissions and for, and for the, for the world, um, to combine that with the fact that we are now subsidizing, that's how we subsidize oil in a big way. Uh, and, and, and how much we're seeing that has, has, and how much the airlines are hurting the response to bailing out airlines, if we'd have to do so, cannot, in my mind, or has, should come with some sort of understanding that we cannot keep just bailing you out for how cheap. We can't keep subsidizing flights. Like, flights should not be, short-haul flights especially, should not be as cheap as they are. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say that people won't be able to visit their, their relatives long distance. I understand some of the importance of, of, of that. I'm not going to hold that one. But, like, a lot of the fact that you can fly from Toronto to New York for 100 bucks on Porter... That should not be possible. And who are the people taking the majority of these short-term flights? Are they not the very businessmen who are paid a bunch of money by corporations? Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah, the people taking these short-haul flights, yes, are the richest of the rich, right? They're the people who are sort of just taking this for convenience because they want to go to New York for a business flight uh, or a business conversation and fly back in the same day, right? And, and they're the ones who are now very comfortably working from home without having to worry about how they're going to make their money, while the people who are de- desperately needing the money are, are hoping that someone can help them out. You know, and so, like, this is all about, you know, going back to what Lauren said, 
all of this is, has to be war, war, wrapped into our, our overall eventual response. Um, continuing as, uh, further back on your conversation, uh, wouldn't it be useful to have an extra $4.5 billion uh, right now? You know, if I was the, if I was the Canadian government, uh, had I perhaps not purchased uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Which, given the price of oil, and I'll jump even further back for a second to mention once again, and I will never stop saying this, the crisis that exists for the oil industry was not caused by COVID. Uh, it was worsened by COVID, for sure, but the problem would have been there. It was baked into the entire concept that we could be making money on a $58, 50 to $58 barrel of oil, or that the brief time that it was always up there near 100 really got to our heads. And, and that conversation that we had there really wrapped us into this concept that this is what we should be doing. And without COVID, we'd still be sitting at 30 and we'd still be losing money before all of this really landed because of that price war. And we will be susceptible to that price war regardless of when we get out of this problem. You mean without COVID, we'd be sitting at $30 a barrel? Yes, exactly. You said last week it was trading at 7 yeah, So there's a slight difference between what you can sell a... Can, uh, a, the the type of crude that that is made from Alberta uh, versus the actual overall barrel, uh, but yes, and actually it dropped further than that. The the price that, it, that, that since we had that meet, since we had last week's show, I believe it dropped even further down to five for what um, Alberta could sell, uh, and and I think to make money there they needed to be like seventeen or something. But either way, like it's 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 less all, than a bucket of chicken. Yeah, they're they're all correlated in some way. Mm. But but what I'm saying here is that the Canadian government now owns a four point five billion dollar pipeline that is attached to a to a set of oil that is only can only sell things at a loss right now. It doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if you tripled or quadrupled the capacity of getting that getting that oil to the to the to the BC coast. You are not selling that oil at a at a at a, at a gain. It's it's a losing market from the get go, and we are now stuck with this asset. Um, and the idea that we're going to find a way to like keep this going to a like we're we're still wrapped in. And had we listened, had we listened to the environmentalists making the case that this was a doomed thing from the beginning, we'd be in a much better position. Like as Lauren said earlier, we locked ourselves into. This this current society, which is so reliant on on this on on oil, and and so it, we would be in a bad position at the best of times, and but we made our company even more brittle by doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the fact that we think that we can make oil work, uh, and and that is that is just unconscious. And there is, I mean, you say that uh, it's bad to have the public uh, bail out. Uh, the companies that left the orphan wells in the first place to have us do that. However, it is uh, touted by um, people who want to uh, transition away from oil patch jobs into environmental cleanup jobs. So that's such that like Iron and Earth founder Liam Hildebrand, um, Iron and Earth being a coalition of uh, tar sands workers who want green jobs, want to transition their skills into the green sector uh see a future for oil sees a future for oil patch workers moving into environmental cleanup jobs so yeah so here we have the idea of the of the federal emergency package uh allowing that green transition through moving the oil patch workers into environmental cleanup jobs 
Yeah, I, 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 like the work's going to have to get done, right? And I'm not saying that that we should not do this work just to spite, you know, the oil companies. What I'm saying is we should get the oil companies to pay for this. So if we're going to do this bailout now, then I hope to everything that we possibly could to ensure that the money that, that the money that's going into this program or that in the future any money that is coming out of that that sector is in some ways going to this to ensure that this does not continue um, and that we are making sure that significantly more money is being driven towards that from the actual companies that are profiting that's that's my point not that we shouldn't do it but that we should be making sure that the oil companies are at least paying for it either either indirectly or directly. Uh, at this point, indirectly is much, much more likely. So, you know, yes, we still need to clean it up. That was, yeah. And and if that's where if that's where people see the ability to move the the workers from one place to another, then that's what I fully support. Um, but let's let's move on to the music break because I think we're coming up to a, to a natural stop here. So let's go to music break and we'll come back with with what the world or at least the United States is thinking. And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? We were joined by Lauren Latour earlier with a nice piece, and Saren Kaster will not be speaking this week, but they will have something next week for us. And we're now continuing with uh, what the governments uh, could do to address climate change and environmental catastrophe coming out of the COVID crisis. And I'm going to turn to an article published in Grist. The Grist staff published this article on the 24th of March, listing the opinions of experts in various uh, environmentally tangential fields regarding what should be done with government money in the United States to turn the pandemic into an environmental victory. Energy finance analyst Clark Williams Derry said in the article that fracking in the U.S. has been an unrelenting financial failure for at least a decade and should therefore not receive bailout money that should instead go to renewables and storage. Lynn Richards of Congress for the New Urbanism uh, said that they should focus on millions of small-scale projects like stormwater management, rain gardens, affordable housing, transit, bike lanes, sidewalks, and so forth. Bracken Hendricks of Urban Ingenuity argues that any industry getting a bailout should be asked to provide long-term environmental benefits in return, like when the auto industry had to improve fuel efficiency after 2008, and he also argues for decarbonizing at the community level. May Bove of 350.org writes, quote, We need increased public spending and an end to austerity on a global level. This pandemic has demonstrated that a huge and growing portion of the planet's labor force is working under increasingly precarious conditions. People are forced to choose between feeding their families and social distancing, and this crisis has revealed so many systemic problems in the way the economy is set up and how that affects the most vulnerable. Massive government investment in public infrastructure is also what's going to help us combat future shocks caused by climate change, and it's also going to be what helps us build the low-carbon infrastructure we need. That takes us further away from catastrophic climate impacts and builds the green economy that we need for the future. 
Michelle Roberts of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance for Chemical Policy Reform writes in the article in Grist, quote, We need to see how it is that the vulnerabilities that were permitted through things such as racial segregation, forced migration, all of these things that stem back to racial and ethnic discrimination. How are we addressing remedies to make people whole in these stimulus packages uh, as we look at climate change and the climate crisis and now this pandemic coronavirus crisis? And Mustafa Ali of the National Wildlife Federation writes that the focus should be on, quote, uh, wind, solar thermal, tidal, and making sure that we are creating advanced manufacturing opportunities. And those advanced manufacturing opportunities are in the communities that have been under-resourced and underserved. Advanced manufacturing opportunities, I believe, refers to uh, manufacturing scenarios which are optimized for efficiency and uh, energy and so forth. Ah, uh, okay. Um, well, I, I have I, there's there is one thing that the bailout could do uh, that I think would both be free um, and go a long way to help. I'm going to say almost everyone, which is to let the cruise industry die. Uh, not a single cent should be given to any cruise industry whatsoever. Uh, they intentionally harbor themselves in tax havens. They are all, uh, n- why they leave the U.S., they are all basically pretending that they are, you know, different uh, other nations, uh, uh, that they are companies in other nations, which also means that they have few regulations. Uh, they are environmental nightmares, and they are the worst. Uh, doesn't, I understand some people enjoy them and that's, and that's great, but they, the, the way they are currently run is unsustainable and basically bad for literally everything. And so, and, and literally they, they, you'd be giving money to non, um, to, to just, to just non, uh, like companies that are not based out of America. Like if you're the States and you're bailing out the cruise industry, then I, I, please don't, just please don't. That would be that you're already winning there, um, but the the bigger point that was made here, which was made a couple times, and I think even Len Lauren mentioned, and I think cannot be under understated. I mean, overstated. Yes, right. Cannot be overstated. Uh, is is that the is 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 the importance and in the opportunity here to invest in infrastructure, like you mentioned, the sort of small little little things like stormwater drainage, bike lanes. Uh, especially public transit, um, you know, these are the types of things that they have proven to to re- respond and provide, like you know, like two or three times economic value that you put into them, and and especially when you think about other public goods like public transit, you know, or public health, you know, when at least when you're here in Canada, you know, those are the things that that you want that we're falling back on right now, right? Like those are the things that are that are still running and are still keeping our keeping us alive. Uh, that that these types of infrastructures that are that are being held uh, and the support of them would go would would be everything. You know, they are the 
they are what is most important and and what protects us not only from a long term they allow us to make better decisions long term like they are better urban planning decisions uh you know they are better for people's health they are better for the environment but they're also what they're also what happens to protect you when you have these other like like these pandemics uh, or I say these pandemics as if we've lived through another one, but like, you know, nothing has come close to this in, in our, in our, our lived history. Everyone's comparing it now to the 1918 Spanish flu, right? Like that's the closest we have an analogy. And, uh, the, that's what the new deal did originally. It put a bunch of people to work building community projects and infrastructure projects because yeah. everybody was unemployed. Yeah, and exactly. FDR was like, all right. Yeah, you have we're moving. We're moving some money. We're moving some financing. Well, and that's the thing is everyone like there like the fact that you just had a conservative government like or conservative like the conservatives in Canada just supported you know a a bill that included basically two thousand dollars of 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 to almost every Canadian who needed it um in in some fashion again i'm not gonna i haven't read the whole details and so i'm sure there's places that people slip into the cracks and i'm not trying to say it's perfect but the fact that you have even the conservatives or the fact that you have Mitt romney in the states arguing for a bit of a basic income you know the fact that these things are are on the table right now prove that in the times get tough the people look for government to respond and if we can respond in a way that we take all of these people who are looking for meaningful work and put them to work in building the future and building the uh, a a a economy that actually works for people and a society that actually lets people live um, and live well and and you know and does meaningful work. like you are built if you are building the public transit for the next for the next decade or next hundred years that's meaningful work that's a way we can put people to work in a real meaningful way and and to me that's the opportunity that we're going to come up to again at the end of this i think there's there's still this level of like who knows how long this is happening and and we're all going to be sort of in this weird phase but as you know in the coming months and years the response out of this has got to be something that really invests in people and in infrastructure and it's interesting that a crisis it takes a crisis like this to show just how simple the concept is of taking money away from non-useful parts of the economy (laughs) and putting them towards useful parts of the economy such that people who need work can find work yeah oh exactly yeah you know like you're you're able to hide a lot of the cracks as as is said in the the piece you were reading previously Uh, you're allowed you're able to hide a lot of the cracks of our of our society behind the behind you know when you when everyone is making enough money, or when you're able to do this, and then some and a crisis comes along, and you see just how brittle it is, and what you, you fall back on is is the need for for community and and public good. Uh, and uh, I think that brings us towards the end of this program. We will be back next week uh, with more conversations around. Uh, probably, I'm going to guess we're going to always, it's going to be hard to not broadcast a little bit about COVID, uh, but keeping the environmental lens uh, as best we can. So we'll see you all real soon. Peace. Peace.